Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to the Everyday Martial Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today was born in Brasilia, Brazil, and moved to Rio de Janeiro when he was 17. In his youth, he was very active in swimming. As part of sports and nutrition world, he was a top sales rep for Optimum Nutrition and started his own store in 1999. During this time, he developed a friendship with Carlson Gracie. He's been teaching martial arts in the Austin area for two decades and has operated his own school for 16 years and now owns and operates two schools in the Austin area. He's considered an expert on teaching children with many top instructors seeking his advice. He's created numerous DVDs and video resources for instructors. And while not teaching, he enjoys outdoor activities such as rock climbing, hiking, and swimming. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Joao Cruz. How are you doing today, sir? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Oh, of course, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. What we like to do, I want to go back to the very beginning, and I just want to know where where that first spark, that first interest in martial arts came from for you. Okay, so it always started. Uh, I think it was practicing karate. Of course, everybody was practicing karate at some point in their lives. Mm-hmm. And one day, I went to a there were two different things. So that was the first way. I went to a class and upstairs on the gym I was going. There was a jiu-jitsu class. I always thought it was weird, but that they decided to go upstairs and I really like what I saw. And immediately I want to stop doing karate. That's what, and I was about to make that decision. So then that weekend, there's another sign came. I went to a party and there was this guy being abusive with his girlfriend. So I was almost a black belt in karate. It wasn't. It was a brown belt. And then I thought, okay, I can take care of this dude. He's abusing his girlfriend. I got in the middle of the situation. And he took me down, choked me out, and I had no idea what happened. I couldn't defend myself. And then when I woke up, his girlfriend actually was there. And I asked her, what is it? I didn't want to know what martial art was. I just realized what Mm -hmm. happened. I was asking, what is it? And she said, that's jiu-jitsu. So I kept that in mind. My arm was broken. So she took to the hospital. So and then I I was thinking about what's this. So I went Carson was already I met him at my store. Mm-hmm. He would go used to go there every afternoon to just have conversations. He never actually talked much about jujitsu. We talk about life. So I since I was the only person that actually knew, I decided to go to his studio just to observe. And then when I went there with my arm in a cast, he said, You're not gonna train, right? For no, just an observe. So I went every night after closing the store, I would go to his studio and just watch what people doing. So 30 days later, I signed up and I knew a little something. So that's how it started. I was very interested for just two facts. Okay. I I want to back up a little bit. How did you first get involved in karate and, and how old were you when that started? I don't know exactly. I think it was just because my friends were doing and I said, okay, and they invite me one day and I said, okay, let's do that. So I think I was very interested in was doing karate. 
on the forums, the katas. Ah, okay. And all competitions I would participate was always related to the forums. Okay. And that's it. Until, you know, there is no way to go. There is a limitation. You don't have anything else to grow and learn. And, and that's what kept me in jiu-jitsu. You learn every single day. Okay. I definitely want to get more into the jitsu, but with the karate, um, how did you do in the competitions? Did you do well competing? I did. I got some uh, national tournaments in Rio de Janeiro. Okay. Participating. Yes. I, but they were not fights. They were katas. Okay. They were forms. Yes. I think I got like maybe three, no, four or five. I don't remember exactly. Four or five times. Okay. A uh, state champion. Yes. Nice. And during that time, did you get involved in teaching when you were doing karate at all? Or did that come later with jujitsu? That came later. I was not interested in teaching at all. Okay. And do you remember what style of karate it was? Shotokan. Ah, very cool. Okay. That was my second. I studied that when I was in high school. So it's a very good style. Okay. Yeah. I think everybody was doing that at some point in life. Yeah. (laughs) I I wish everybody would. I I, I think everybody should try some type of martial arts at some point in their life. But unfortunately, a lot lot of people don't. They give excuses. Absolutely agree. I think it would be a great, yeah, it's true. So then now you, you met Carlson, you built up that relationship and you started training in his school. So think about your first one or two classes in his school. What was it about it? What made you want to keep coming back and what made you enjoy it so much? If I remember the first technique I learned, usually people learn whenever you go in the world, the first class anywhere you learn, I mean, you do jiu-jitsu probably know, you learn how to skate from the mouth position. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And maybe the teacher goes a little bit further and teaches how to escape from the guard. Anyways, in that class, wasn't that. I learned an armbar oh. from the mouth position. And then immediately I started using that. I mean, it was a way as well, the way the classes were taught. Without much knowledge, you would be thrown in a fight. Mm-hmm. Not today. Some schools, they give some, uh, like I do when I teach, I give my students a set of, you know, trying to help them to have a mindset about what is involved first. For, to avoid injury, so they don't have a sparring. What they do have is a training partner instead of opponent. Mm-hmm. So after 30 days, they already have an understanding about attacking and defending. At that time, that was not true. You just had one technique or two, and then you, okay, sparring time, get your partner, and you had to defend yourself. Oh, wow. So the only thing I knew was a number, so I would try to always get that position and number people. So I made some enemies because I was doing really well doing that and people did not like it. The beginners that like started with me, mm-hmm. I would bombard them every night <laughs> nice. and they didn't like me. They looked at me with that face like, I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. That's how I remember my first month, my first week. Okay, cool. And how long did you stay at that school? I would say physically I stayed with them for probably a year, Okay, but spiritually emotionally, professionally, actually, uh, until his death, because he moved to um, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Later, I started having class with De La Riva, which is one of his top students. Mm-hmm. And then, which actually, De La Riva was the one teaching class at Carson Gracie anyways. He gave the belts to a lot of famous jiu-jitsu players that you know, but that's another story. So I moved to the United States later to Austin. And then when I moved here, I started visiting in Chicago at least once a month. So I still kept connecting. I brought him to Austin to teach a workshop in Texas. Mm-hmm. And I would say a month later, he passed away. Oh, wow. Talk a little bit about Carlson. What, what was he like as a person, as an instructor? He was a very intense person, very accessible, by the way. I mean, mm-hmm. despite of the fact that he was a 
you know, a top a champion for 20 years, he had an eye to know people deepest in their souls through the way they're moving their body. So it was amazing. Everybody talks about that. Mm-hmm. We have a fight, I mean, a competition. And then he would look to my opponent and would say, okay, go do that and that. You're going to win because this guy is doing this and that the way he walks. Or he is moving his eyes or looking away. I don't know how that was very incredible accurate. Mm-hmm. And I don't think ever another team like ours will exist again. I think at that time it was a dream team of jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. For 20 years, from the white to the black belt, all the divisions in tournaments were taken and conquered by that team, Castle Gracie, because of his personality. But how to know people, he was very accessible as well and humble. And he had a very generous heart, you know, and he passed that on to all his students. Why everybody else was pretty much like a bully, you know, especially at that time. So I know jiu-jitsu, I am more, I don't know, I have a, it's like a, a magic power, a superpower, especially at that time. And to today, but you can defend everything, anyone on the street. And, but it's much special at that time. But one of characteristics of the, our school, he, he was not that way. So it, pretty much everybody... He was a model. We all followed that model. And there was not like a bully reflection in our personalities, I would say. Okay. Because of his behavior. So, which was different than other schools that the students were kind of afraid of their teachers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, do you remember your first ever jujitsu competition? I remember, yes. I was a blue belt okay. and I was really nervous. And and I'm saying, oh, I understand. Uh, I remember, I was against a guy that was really skilled. He was a blue belt longer than I was. I would say he was on the very end of that journey, about to turn a purple belt. And I had just got my blue belt. Okay. He was actually really skilled because he had experience in different other martial arts. But for some reason, as you know, competition doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. Uh, you can be really skilled in training at school, but when you compete, it's a lot of different emotional factors that influence that moment. Uh, despite the fact that I was nervous before the fight, when I stepped on the mats and shook hands with him, I calmed down. I was very relaxed. And I won, not by submission. I won by points. Oh, okay. And I was surprised. I said, how did that happen? So I had more advantages. I passed the guard. And then that made me confident for the next fight. But then in the second one, I lost because the guy was really good. He was calm. So okay. and since it was my first competition, to me, it was very significant because he was a training partner, actually, from the same studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, it was very important to that victory over him, you know. Nice. And at what level did you, I know you said when you were karate, you had no interest in teaching. So at what level did you start thinking about, maybe this is something I want to do with jujitsu. Maybe I do want to start teaching. I think when that happened, I think it was during the Clinton administration. Uh, there was a big effort from the government to combat, I mean, fight obesity in children. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that. Yep. Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah. So, and I already was living in the United States in Dripping Springs, Texas. And I thought, yes, I'm surrounded by all these kids overweight. So what if, if I start teaching children? So my first interest was an alignment with that goal of the government and help the children that were around me without much knowledge. Okay. I just want to help, but I, I little I knew that I had to do, there was a big research ahead of me to understand how to teach children which still happens because it's but in the heart that's how it started i said i need to share what i know but i want to help them to be active all those kids at that time more than now 
they're all just sitting on the couch and I know that's general generalized playing video games, right. not necessarily that, but screen oriented somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So now were you a black belt when you came to the United States? No, as a blue belt too. I think I moved through the ranks here with help with De La Riva coming to seminars, Carson, observed by them. I wasn't. And so how long were you a black belt then before you started teaching? Well, I started teaching at the blue belt level. Oh, you actually. did? Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, actually, I, I had, if I'm not mistaken, I had some educational videos as a blue belt as well. Oh, wow. Yes. And now, were you just teaching? Did, did you have your own school at that time? Or were you teaching somewhere else? How was that working? No, I never taught somewhere else. I always wanted to have my own studio. It just, to me, made sense in a sense of, I always thought it would be difficult to merge different mindsets running a competition environment, if you know what, what I mean. Yep. There are different interests. And I thought, that's not going to work. I mean, maybe it's a limitation, but I always thought that I would like to have my own space. So I never work with anyone. Since the beginning, I opened my own space and start managing how the class should be and how to teach this, how to model to the students as well, mm -hmm. you know, and that paid off. Today, I have a big army of people helping, interested in the growth because of that first modeling. So in your opinion, why do you think so? In karate and taekwondo and, and other martial arts, if someone who was a blue belt or purple belt were to open a school, they'd be frowned upon. But it seems that actually happens a little more often with jujitsu, where a blue belt or purple belt will actually open a school before they become a black belt. Why do you think it's more accepted from a jujitsu side than it is from like a karate side? Any ideas on that? It's a very good question. I'm not sure if I have the answer, but my opinion is there is more interest because of the effectiveness of jiu-jitsu. And again, I'm not trying to dismiss karate. Right. Because I did that for a long time. I respect whoever, the listener that's listening right now, their passion for karate. I did for a long time. I think it's a great exercise for adults and children alike. But I think if you're looking for effectiveness, they will also agree that jiu-jitsu can really be on top of the shelf. Based on that, the interest worldwide it's really huge. You know, think about how many podcasts we have today, how many events we have per week. I would say every weekend we probably have 100 events happening in the United States alone. Wow. Not considering the world. I mean, tournaments every weekend, go, gi, no gi. So not even the glorified moment of judo or karate, we had that never happened. Mm -hmm. So there's also, because of that, more interest in financing, I mean, sponsoring events and there's some more professionals making a life, a living with jiu-jitsu. Have you heard anyone making a living professionally with karate? Oh, yeah. There's some out there. Yeah, but very few. They're not even known. I mean, we know some, but very few. So, But that's a different perspective, professionally, uh, outcome from, from jiu-jitsu. So because of this interest, so a lot of people start teaching their garage with a very minimum knowledge, or like a beginner, like a blue belt, like I was, you know. But I could teach children because all they need was basics. Mm -hmm. Today, what you see in the professional level, small, a lot of the schools are actually hiring or training blue belts as an assistant during the class to be able to teach class for children or adults. Okay. I don't know if it's a reality today for the Blue Belt to open a studio 
because of the amount of black belts that exist today. Uh, there was a time that was true because we did not have many black belts in the United States, yeah. especially in Europe. I witnessed that going to a tour in 2011. Most of the countries did not have black belts in jiu-jitsu. So what, for you personally, thinking back to that, the, the first time you taught as a blue belt to now, what do you think has changed the most about your teaching style? Oh, that's a good question, too. And I think that the answer, in my opinion, can be helpful to everyone that's want to teach. One thing I realized, to be a better, good teacher, you have to understand the need of the student. It's not to impose your curriculum, your view, how that should be done. Each person has a different anyway, understanding, but also a body adaptation to the moves, right? And an understanding how their body moves. So I think what changed for me was that before I had a curriculum, and I want everybody to learn the curriculum my way because that's supposed to happen. There was a principle and that's how it's done. With time teaching, I realize it's more productive to the students as a general rule that he, I am interested in knowing what he needs to progress. Does that make sense? Okay. But of course, the curriculum still has to be enforced, but it's just a different view on how you apply it. Nice. So what, what made you decide to start doing instructional DVDs? That was because as well children as more because I before I started teaching children I made a research of course I'm a foreigner I didn't speak English completely well I didn't I had to understand how at the time I would connect with children not necessarily language like English mm-hmm. I was looking for what's the language how can I connect with them and I'm still searching for it I mean it's just I feel that sometimes I'm a different level of the spiral in searching of the same thing. But what I noticed is there was a need in the market in how you're gonna teach that to children. There were no curriculum at the time. Everybody that I knew, I mean, everybody complaining about, I cannot teach children jujitsu, so difficult. Some of them would say the children are dumb. And I said, no, they're not. They're completely open, clean slates. So the way you're gonna communicate with them um, make it easy for them to understand. We will define how this is success of the program and how they're going to develop too. So I want to share that with other teachers. And that's in 2008, I started one of the most extensive curriculum for children that exists. I'm not saying that other coaches could not do it. They can, absolutely, especially in jiu-jitsu. But the way I did the first one, it took me like 13 months. It was so exhaustive. At some points, I want to give up. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it was not teaching the techniques, I also included the language, motivation, how you keep children interested in doing that. And turned out to be a really long, probably four hours instructional, divided in different, like it's like a five DVDs, each DVD, one for each belt, and each DVD has a four different level of instructions progressing, you know. Mm-hmm. So that today mean, doesn't mean that that curriculum is written in stone and that's the only thing that can be done. I think it can be a good guide for teachers that want to start and they can create according to the experience on that. I just established like a base, in my opinion, that would be easy to follow. Okay. And in that way, I was trying to help the market. Everybody that's interested in teaching children, there you go. You have a comprehensive curriculum. See it first. See if you agree. If you do, there you go. You know, it's ready for you. So that was the proposal. When did you launch the, is it the Just Do It website? 
Yes, just Jewit.com. That's where is, uh, we have that in DVD physical, or but also we have streaming, which is more popular, and that's nice. a big success of that website. Cool. I will definitely put a, put a link out there for that site also. That's, I was just looking through it, and a lot of, a lot of good stuff in there. That's kind of cool. Uh, thank you very much, yes. And now to follow that, I just started this year, actually, a podcast, because of the other part of the class, which is very important. You're not catering to children. You're catering to parents. If you are focused on teaching children only, and that's the duality of this. I just told you to find out mm-hmm. where that's, you need to understand the need of the, the student, right? Right. To be a good teacher, but managing a business. And then you have another aspect to add to the pie, which is you're selling this service to the parents, even though you feel like you're catering to the children. It's not true. Because if you're not able to solve the problem to the parent, now you're failing. Our child comes to your school for different reasons. Lack of attention, lack of confidence, not very social, many reasons. I mean, and you have to be able to identify the first process, I would say. First part of the process is to have a good talk, an interview with the parents asking what their goals. So it makes it easier to achieve them once you know what you need to do. But um, I also would say that uh, it makes so much easier if you also consider that part that you are catering to the parents, not just for the kids. That's the black belt parenting? Yes. So that podcast talks about how you identify issues in the class. I say parenting because the tools of training children or coaching children, if you're really interested and want to do that from the bottom of your heart, is not different than parenting at all. It's the same thing. It doesn't change absolutely anything. If you're parenting, if you're coaching children, or if you are teaching children at school, for instance, you're always going to be reinforcing parenting tools in a way or another. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And how has yes. that how has that podcast been accepted? Have people seem to have been enjoying it? Yes, I I I wasn't sure because I couldn't measure before mm-hmm. the popularity of the podcast. But recently, I had a speech was invited to give about the the curriculum for children in Texas, close to Houston, I think Texas City. And there are 400 martial artists, teachers sitting there, wow. listening to me for two hours. It's supposed to be one hour speaking. They extended because the public were asking. There was an interactive speech. Mm-hmm. At some point at the end, they would be open to questions. So all the martial artists had a lot of questions. And I told them to see uh, the podcast, watch it, follow. And I saw a big amount of subscribers after that speech. Nice. Which is coming now to create another service, which is class suggestions that I'm releasing pretty soon. Once a week, I'm going to be talking about, once a month, I'm going to be talking about one topic, like behavior. And once a week, I have a five to 20 minutes explanation how you handle that in a jiu-jitsu class. Okay. Talking with the child, how the coach should be facing that situation, body language, tone of voice, also how you address the parent about that. You cannot leave the parent out of the situation either. Nice. I'll have to, I'll have to check some of those out. That looks really interesting. So Yeah, that's going to about to be released. I'm just working on the first set. Okay. Four, and I think it's going to be released in January 1st. Okay. So you've done instructional videos. You're doing podcasting. So any, any interest in writing a book? Uh, yes. Yeah. That's the next step. And nice. I am. Uh, I have some notes be taking along the way. The book is going to be about stories. Okay. 
individual stories of that I had with interaction during the classes. Okay, that'll be fun. So that might be pretty much the same of the the, the new online class that I am proposing to start. It's going to be all the content is going to be in a book. That'll be fun. Yeah. Nice. Good luck with you. you. Have to let me know when that comes out. So, I'll, no, uh, thank like, you. Yes, I will. I, I have, a, I have a huge, huge martial arts li- book library, and I, I like adding to it all the time. So, I think I've added six books in the last few weeks. So, always good to get martial arts books. There's great books out there. Yes. Nice. So, question for you then, and maybe you don't have an answer for this, but let's say someone knows nothing about jujitsu and they come up to you and they're like, "What's the difference between Brazilian jujitsu?" Japanese jiu-jitsu, and judo. How would you answer that? Okay, so I'm going to explain a little bit about each. So judo is a martial art that's pretty much focused on standing up and throws, takedowns, and good for self-defense too because of it. They do have a ground fighting that's not very prevalent in their training, okay? Okay. But that exists, is there. The jiu-jitsu in Japan is pretty much based in strength. So if you're not strong, you're going to fight someone above your weight division, it's going to be a trouble. Okay. And jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, is one adaptation of the Japanese jiu-jitsu that when, you know, the story can't come and went to Brazil, taught to the Gracies, the Gracie families were men from northeast Brazil, not very high stature, they were small people not very strong, so they create the leverage. And that made the big difference. Now, at this point, women as well could participate, you know? So that eliminated the need of strength and being the same weight division. So a smaller person could defeat someone that's bigger or heavier. Okay. So to me, I would say that's a big difference. Jiu-Jitsu has more leverage in its techniques. Anyone can do it. Rather than Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, I have my questions because of the strength. Mm-hmm. And the judo is something on the side would say is a very good complement to jiu-jitsu, but it's focused more on the Western culture in takedowns. Okay. They focus on standing up, but they also have a very extensive curriculum that could uh, match up with jiu-jitsu, the ground fighting. There's some uh, judo, I mean, if you watch a judo competition, you see they go to the ground, but the rules they have are so limiting that people don't feel very interested in continuing the fight on the ground. And that's probably the reason they don't train as much, because of the competition. It's a competitive sport, so it's trained today based on competition. Jiu-Jitsu also is, I would say, and most of gyms are focused on competition, but there are a lot of other gyms that are interested in the self-defense aspect of it. Right. So since they have both, that creates more interest and make, I don't know, I would say that's a big difference between them all. No, that's a great answer. So is your gym, is your gym more focused on the competition side, the self-defense side, or is it a pretty even mix? Well, as a business owner, I feel that I could not neglect all the aspects of the business. So we have self-defense, we have competition, private classes, we have everything that the business could allow you to have, okay. you know? So if a student that is in need to this or that, we can offer an environment for them to practice what they're interested in. All right, so let's say somebody approaches you. They've never done martial arts in their life. They don't live in Texas, they're, so they're, they're not going to go to your school, but they're just wondering, I want to get involved in martial arts. What are some things I should look for in a school, and what are some things I, sh- I should maybe avoid in a school? This is a very good question. I think a lot of people don't follow that or don't have the orientation. What I would say, I would say visit some schools before making a decision and define what kind of style do you want. But above all, pay attention to how the teacher teaches and treats its students. 
that's going to be because you're going to be in a relationship with that person. How do you like to be treated? Does that make sense? Very much, yes. That will directly affect you in your personal growth toward that sport. So you got to choose with you going to train. Nice. Talking about your school, just walk us through just a, a typical class. If someone were to come and try out your school, what could they expect in a typical class? Oh, it depends. If you're talking about the children class, there is a warm-up. The warm-up uh, based on drills. They're going to be moving their bodies in the techniques. They're going to be taught later. Mm-hmm. So they are important part because they, that's when the children exercise. It's important for emotional regulation in the children that the warm-up exists in a certain way. Tumbling, you can go deep in that conversation, just leave it at that. But that's very important that happens in a children's class. And then that calms them down for you to have more attention, their attention to teach the class. So then you have a technique. It has to be simple and basic for them to understand and be excited and participate. We always help them to understand. Then after that, we have sparring, which is incredible that I heard recently. I had no awareness of that, that most of schools don't allow children to spar. Really? Yeah, and I don't know why. So the explanation I got for some people is liability, but how they're going to apply what they're learning. At least some kind of assistance should happen for them to be able to express what they learn. So anyways, that's one aspect. So and then after that, we have a recreational drill to for them to go home with a good feeling. Mm-hmm. Then we reward someone. I mean, not necessarily rewarding. I'm very against this culture of rewarding cuddling. That is a big stream you're facing now. Yep. But that is pretty much, I would say, change the word, the recognition of the one that made an effort to do a good job, to be focused on the class, or was that outstanding in practicing, you know, or was helpful to another child. So make sure to give, to make sure the child that's trying to do that effort is seen. So that motivates other children probably to do the same because that's what we're looking for to all of them. Okay. So that's going to be a, a child's a children class. The adults, not different, don't have games. It's just a warm-up. After the warm-up, we have a, a math talk uh, quickly about how everybody's doing, if you have any questions. And then we have the curriculum of the week. We teach one technique that's going to be connected to the technique of next day for the whole week. We're going to be drilling that game. So by the end of the drill, everybody has a break. And then you go for a sparring time. We have like three or four, depending on the night, how people mm-hmm. are feeling. We have five sets of seven minutes. After that, we have a stretching and then everybody goes home. We, uh, before going home, we line up and we have a, a talk, another math talk, what they learn and what does that mean and have questions and then they go home. Nice. So that's pretty much the classic how I run. And about how, how long do your classes last about? It lasts one hour and a half. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. I wish more schools did hour and a half classes. <laughs> I think a lot, a lot of schools shorten their classes so they can get more classes in during a day, but I like the longer classes. Which is not a bad idea. I'm thinking actually, questioning myself, if my time in class is actually smart because when you have, instead of one hour and a half, a long class, have one hour class, it doesn't mean the student that was in the class before cannot come to the second class. True. But we can do with that shortening time, you accommodate more people according to their schedule. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, so that's something I'm planning to change. Okay. It just was there for a long time, but this 2023 yeah. is going to change. Okay. So what are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC, and are you a fan? I'm a fan, but I also have to agree with what Hickson Gracie says. 
that's a sport that is limited by time. Mm-hmm. So the athletes, they have to explode in a limited time to make sure they get a result, positive result. Mm-hmm. And the jiu-jitsu different goal actually goes a little bit against that because you need time to build, to get your opponent tired, to control the situation. And then you go for the submission. So, but I also understand that the advent of the UFC created this big window for people to see since the one of the core of that event is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, creates a big opportunity for exposure, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's a good opportunity. At the same time, the event itself creates not necessarily the athletes. That's mm-hmm. what I say. Yeah. Were you more of a fan of the, the old school UFC before they put the time limits in then? Yes, I think there was a show before I forgot. I think it was what was the name? It was in Japan long time ago before UFC. Oh, Pride. Pride. Yeah. So there was more time you could see what could happen. That was more real. I mean, I don't know more real. UFC is real as well. As well. Yeah. But it was different time, and I understand time changed, sponsorship, satisfaction to the sponsors, and. Everything has to adapt to that reality. Yeah. So I understand that too. The first four or five UFCs had no time limits either. And then they changed pretty quick. But because I know there was a, a few of the Hoist Gracie fights that, you know, went over a half hour. So, yes, in that exactly what created the interest worldwide. Yeah, agreed. Was how he was able to build and defeat. I mean, all his opponents were two or three times his weight. Yep. And you don't do that exploding in five minutes. You need time, and that translates what Jiu-Jitsu does. So that was a perfect example, uh, the first four UFC. But then they, of course, mm-hmm. Hori and Gracie actually sold that. And yeah. the new group changed for what it is, became this huge business, but then changed as well the face of the, um, the initial proposal. Absolutely. So who are some names, and, and it can be two, three, four, five, however many names you want. Who are some names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? What do you mean necessarily on the, like on the Hall of Fame? Yeah. Like your personal, like, you know, four or five top people in martial arts, whether they're people you know and met, whether they're people you just admired from afar, people you look up to, just some, you know. Oh, I think I have some names. I would say the first one, I don't know him, but I heard a lot about him. Bruce Lee, he created the law for martial arts in the United States. Nice. A lot of people like martial arts because of Bruce Lee. Yep movies and what he represented to children at that point not just adults children as well mm-hmm. then later i would say uh, hicks and grace is what, what represented for jiu-jitsu worldwide yes you know he's a truly modern samurai he has a lot of teachings that reflect how you translate jiu-jitsu knowledge and teaching to the, your everyday life i think that's important mm-hmm. Then you have Hoist Gracie's brother that revolutionized the martial art business in the United States and in the world because of this UFC that we just talked about. Yep. So so far I have four, right? Yep. So this list is short. So if I had to conclude, I would say today Gordon Ryan, what he has been showing as far as what everybody else is thinking about going to a competition to make fifty thousand dollars and what about getting that prize. Mm-hmm. He's thinking beyond that professionally. Like we can make a million dollars with all the things around it, like educational videos, sponsorship, and a lot of the things. So I think he's he's really good. I think he's number one right now in the world. I can't possibly fight against that reality. Mm-hmm. But also I think he brings a new mindset to athletes that try to understand what he's doing. He really works on a professional level. This life is not going to last so very long. Mm-hmm. 
you know, as an athlete, life is not a very healthy life. You train eight hours. You always giving the maximum you have. It's not very healthy. Right. So it doesn't last much. But I think he has a good understanding of that, and he's doing really well in how he manages his life and his his training and his fights. He's being successful. He's showing there in front of everybody else how you do it. Very cool. All right. In all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that is just super important to you? It's at the top of your list. It's you, you teach it in your own classes. You keep coming back to it. One philosophy that's important. Yes. Well, yes. I would say that no matter how high your skill level is, that doesn't make you an excuse or a reason for you to feel better than the other. I think that's a reason for you to be able to share with someone that does not know. Nice. I like that. That's a good answer. Yeah. So do you think, in your opinion, do you think we'll ever see some type of martial arts in the public school systems? Would you like, I know you really like teaching kids. Do you, would you like to see something like that happen? I would love to see that happening. It happens in other countries around the world, like in Dubai, mm-hmm. not yep. Dubai, it is, uh, Abu Dhabi. The Prince of Abu Dhabi created a curriculum that's now in the public school. So he hires teachers. I think he was hiring from Brazil. I don't know now. And so people have now another way of living, not necessarily based in competition. So mm-hmm. that could be a reality in many other countries as well. Nice. And how the benefit that could be for, not just for the teacher, but also the, the kids that are benefiting from those classes. Right. You know? It's actually, it happens in quite a few schools in Texas. Because I of, really, I, I lost touch with that. So well, where is it happening? Because of uh, Chuck Norris's program that he started back in the 80s. It's originally was called Kick Drugs Out of America. Now it's called Kickstart. But he's in, I want to say, like 50 schools in Texas that he has instructors in mandatory. I think it's middle school. So it's like 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. They take martial arts. And it's, it's, oh, it's okay. yeah. So I mean, okay. it's, it's, it's working there. I don't know why it hasn't spread to other parts of the country yet, but it's I have no idea. Yeah. And uh, it's a good question, but I would say in my view, I was thinking more about jujitsu for yeah. children than necessary oh. karate. I know yeah. both martial arts. I think sometimes that can be good. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I would think with, with wrestling being popular in school, I would think it would be almost easier to get jujitsu into a school. Yeah, it might be real at some point, but also I would, be, I would say today when a, ch- a parent enrolled a child in a jiu-jitsu class, that might benefit, I mean, might be an investment. In mm-hmm. the future, if boy or girl, if they own a high school, invest in wrestling because they'll have already a good background to succeed in wrestling yep. and apply for a scholarship. Definitely. So in, in that sense, it's not an expense anymore. It's investment. That's a good way to look at it. Nice. Yes, if that makes sense. All right, I have right. Some, some fun questions to wrap up here. Do you have a favorite martial arts book? A favorite martial arts book? I'm trying to remember the name. I do. Okay. I would say The Five, uh, five Rings. Oh, Book of Five Rings. Yes. Okay. That's a great book. It's not necessarily towards mm-hmm. that, but can be totally applied to that. That's how the perspective yep. I read that, that book. A lot of people pick that one. That's a great book. So Yes. And it was offered to me in the context of martial arts. When I started reading, it mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily the subject, but it could totally be applied. Definitely. Now, this one you might not have an answer for. Do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Were you ever a gamer? No, I'm not a gamer. Okay. 
I don't have an answer for that. I don't know any video game for martial arts at all. Okay. Sorry for that. No problem. No problem. <laughs> How about a favorite martial arts TV show? Um, the TV show, I think it was the one I was describing to you in the past pride. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. That was my favorite. Okay. How about a favorite martial arts movie? Movie. Hmm. Several there. I would say the second version of the, the Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi. Yes. That was number two when they go to Okinawa. Yes. That was yeah. number two. I think it was interesting in a sense to motivate or create curiosity in mm-hmm. children, youngsters. Yep. Yeah. Very good. So it's one of my favorite movies. So, all right. Now this one, it doesn't have to be a martial arts movie. It can be any movie, just a favorite, yeah. favorite movie fight scene. The favorite movie fight scene, I'm never going to forget. Okay. It was the end of, uh, I don't know what to say, because I watched in Brazil, and it was in Portuguese. Mel Gibson, at the end of the movie, he did a triangle choke. Nobody knew what that was. Oh, Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon, yeah. Yeah, when they're fighting on the front lawn. God, no one's picked that yet. That's a great movie. And nobody in the world knew what that was. Yeah. And Hoyer Gracie was the one that was the coach for that scene because he was working on the movie as an actor as well. I did not know that. So, yes, he was already teaching jiu-jitsu at his garage in California, in L.A. And then he was doing some extras in some movies. So he met Mel Gibson, um, all all the people. But then he thought, and then it was amazing. We in Brazil, we knew when we watched the movie. And I said, who thought that? What mm-hmm. happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then that's created. That's his first approach to show the United States, nice. that part of the culture. And then a lot of people were really interested. What is that? That is cool. I need to go back and watch that again. I haven't watched that in a few years. And I completely, yeah, I for, completely forgot he did a triangle choke. That's awesome. Yes, it is. Nice. So anything else you want to mention before I let you go? Anything else you want to promote or talk about? I, I, like I said, I'll put links for your school and your Just Jewett page and your Black Belt Parenting page. And anything else you want me to put links for, I'll do that. But any anything else we want to talk about that we haven't had time to cover yet? Well, uh, if it's okay, mm-hmm. uh, I would like to talk a little bit. I mean, you can edit that <laughs> if you don't want to put it, but I would like to talk about a little bit about the mindset of my studio. Oh, definitely. The way we teach at my studio is pretty much more related to inclusion. Okay. So we have, I have a very diverse children uh, base with different um, special needs. Oh, very cool. Ranging okay. from attention deficiency, so many other things. And we've been very fortunate being able to, not again, I'm not a specialist in children behavior or psychologist, that's not. It's just an experience of loving what I do, also being a parent for a long time, observing those things. And it doesn't mean, okay, I know it all, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. But I think the interest comes from uh, relentlessly uh, researching and being interested in helping them to try so you naturally kind of try to find uh, tools and it's always adapting, always growing. So I would invite anyone that's interested to know the work we do. It's a little bit different than we're going to find. So we're interested in the emotional development of a child. That's what we're doing in Japan Springs, Texas. That's awesome. That's really, I mean, that's really cool. And then more schools are trying to do that. And I'm, gl- I'm glad you're kind of doing that and leading the way and showing others how to do it. So that's really important to do. Yeah, in the adult setting at classes, it's pretty much, I'm a big believer that the body is the one that reflects how you feel. 
I mean, think about you don't feel anything in your head. You feel in your body. Mm-hmm. Like you see someone they have a beef with, and then you feel something in your body. Or you see a very good friend from high school, middle school. You can barely hold your arms. You want to hug, right? So your body is telling you something. It's doing something. So whenever you're learning, let's suppose, first class, you learn how to escape from the whoever is listening there. The first class probably would be how to escape someone that's sitting on your belly and someone sitting on your belly pinning on the ground. So it feels like impossible. But once the teacher teaches you how to escape using leverage, more and more you're going to be feeling comfortable in uncomfortable positions, meaning that you reflect in your life everyday life as you feeling comfortable in uncomfortable situations because you're training the vessel of your feelings to feel comfortable in uncomfortable positions. Does that make sense? Very much. Yes. So yeah, that's the adult's training. Okay. It doesn't mean that you are neglecting your body or who you are. No, it's somehow making choices. Okay. How, what energy I want to use, how I want to receive this, what is in my awareness. I want to bring anger as part of my everyday life or I can recycle it in something more productive to me. And I think it's close to healing when you understand that, Mm -hmm. you know, so. Nice. I like that a lot. Very cool. Awesome. Well, I just want to thank you so much. It's been, it's been so cool. I I love your story and I I hope to uh, maybe get to Austin someday and and check out one of your schools and meet you in person, but it's been a pleasure talking to you. And like I said, I'll put links for all your stuff out there and promote your stuff and and uh, your your episode should be out in a few weeks, and I'll let you know. But I, I truly appreciate your time. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Brian, for having me. And you'll be very welcome when you get there at my studio when you have a chance. We're going to be training together. Wonderful. I look forward to it, and we, we will be in touch. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artists. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artists, and we'll see you next week.